What is up, Dragon Ball Super Community? This is Marcus and Shane. Danny's absent today, unfortunately. We have Russell Stelzer with us. We're going to be talking about some of the um, competitive aspects of deck choice and deciding on how to approach certain matchups. And uh, Russell's going to put us through a little lesson on Toa um, at the end of all this. Um, so let's just start off with, uh, with something simple. What do you think is one of the most important factors when it comes to like determining um, like sideboard slots towards matchups that may be unfavorable with any deck you choose to take to at a competitive event? Um, I think personally for me, it just kind of goes like, obviously I look at like what are my worst matchups um, and I typically try to dedicate a few slots to that. Like for example, at Pasadena and Philly, uh, this past month, the two events that I played Toa, I think that Baby is a very strong deck against Toa, but for some reason, just a lot of people aren't playing it right now, even though I think it's a very, like, well-positioned deck. Um, and if they go, like, turn two or three, like, Big Ape and play strategies, you literally have no out to it until you can awaken. Um, so they get, like, one to two free turns of just, like, kind of blowing up you. anything you play and just swinging big triple strike on you uh so i i've decided to side to heavenly wizards um for both events just in case i ran into that i can deal with it early um i fortunately i never played a single baby at both events but it was just there because i knew it could have been a blowout if i didn't have it and it was just two slots i mean um, that's fair um mm -hmm. i think that's one of those cards that also like the fact that it doubles up and being good against green broly uh, exactly. Like that's like, a, a reasonable sideboard card that you didn't dedicate too many slots to, but you were respecting mm -hmm. a matchup that you knew was bad, even if it wasn't popular. And I think, like, anytime you side deck, you should always have, like, two to three slots open for a card like that, for, like, a niche matchup that could be really bad. Um, even if it wasn't such a flexible card, like, against Green Brawly, um, I think you'd still side it. Um, but. Yeah, I think being able to just have like that couple cards that just comes in in a very unfavorable matchup and actually makes it um, probably swings it in your favor if you draw it in your opening hand or second turn. Um, right. So, so yeah, I think that that's something that I always look for. So in that kind of matchup, would you try to aggressively mulligan for said card, or would you still try to mulligan to uh, advance your standard game plan? I think that. In a deck like Toa, I definitely mulligan for that card, just because Toa, uh, it, it can do a lot with very little. You, you get to search out, like, most of your deck anyways. Right, it kind um, of fixes so, itself. Yeah, so mulliganing for that side deck card that you, especially if you need to see it in the early turns, um, is important. If it's something that you don't need to see right away, then you can just kind of, like, mulligan for your Vegetas and whatnot. Uh, but as far as something like Heavenly Wizard, where I need to see it early... Um, then yeah, I go for that. That makes sense. Shane, what do you think? Um, typically, like with my sideboards, uh, I, try, I think Zaps something I've always tried to follow it. Like, We're losing signal on you, buddy. Try to make and then like, Sorry, I live in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. <laughs> yeah right, anyway, there you go. try to do the thing like I think Zaps talked about in the past is what I've always tried to do. Make the good matchups great, and try to make the bad matchups tolerable. 
See, I'm kind of on the opposite end of that. I prefer to make the bad matchups, like, if you can make a bad matchup more than 50-50 in your favor, like, even if it's just 55-45 in your favor, um, while making maintaining a neutral to positive win ratio against your good matchups, then you're doing something good there if you're, if you're confident in your skill level. Because with uh, a high enough skill level and a little bit of variance on your side, obviously, because, you know, to win a tournament, usually you have to have some amount of luck in your favor. If you can make your bad matchups in your favor and then just outskill your good matchups, then you have less to worry about, I think. But, like, that's just a matter of preference. I see what you're mm -hmm. saying with your with your side of the argument, for sure. Um, it's totally reasonable to say, like, crush all of your good matchups, and then just, like, sometimes you just gotta take an L. I do think it's, like, it also depends a lot on what you expect the meta to be going right. into the event. Um, if you... If there's a matchup that you think is really good in your favor, um, but you don't expect it to be, like, heavily... Re heavily represented then maybe you don't you, you probably don't dedicate a ton to that but if it's something like you know janemba is typically just an absolute auto win i haven't for toa i think i played five janembas in the last two events and haven't lost dropped a single game to them um with the deck like if you if you open vegeta it's just it's pretty much a wrap um right. but there are times you know like the way they win is if you know if you don't see vegeta's and they happen to like mill all your Vegetas, um, or they they side in some removal like Family of Justice go ten and kill it early, and you just can't really stabilize from that. Um, so in that regard, I did side deck like uh, Power Overseeing Time Trunks, just because that is a super favorable matchup for me and one that I shouldn't lose. Um, but I know that Janemba is always going to be a heavily represented deck, so I side that just because I'm never gonna. If I see two to three Janembas a tournament, then that's two to three free wins for me, just by having that Trunks in there for, like, security. And that's reasonable. That deck choice has a lot to go into that whole, like, debate on the sideboard. Right. Mm -hmm. I think, I mean, and I think we can all agree that, on average, you want to have a, a, like, there's always going to be some card that'll make any one matchup better. So having a sideboard that's fleshed out enough to where you always have something to bring in in every matchup to make every matchup better after your sideboard, um, unless the matchup is just literally you can't lose it, then um, and you have no reason to sideboard. Like there should almost always be something you can bring in out of your board. So like that's where kind of preparation, understanding where your sideboard uh, options can cross over, so you're not sitting there with four copies of one card for one matchup that doesn't go in against any other deck. Right, like, a good example was, like, when we went to Ohio and we played the skills deck, like, we just accepted the fact we were going to lose to Striving and didn't even try to, like, play it. Like, if they played Striving, we were just going to... Yeah, we just kind of hoped that they didn't have... There was less people playing Striving at that event, which I, mm -hmm. I got the unfortunate to that stick. Or, <laughs> Fortunately, my Striving opponent got a game loss. It was, it was the same guy I lost to in Swiss, too. Um, funny enough. But, yeah. So, like, we were just hoping to avoid that matchup, like Shane was saying. Yeah. But, at the same time, we, like, our sideboard options were, like, 3 TN, 3 Haru Haru, mm -hmm. and 3 Killy Zone, and, like, we just, before the, all these new counterplays, we would just bring in all these cards that made the matchup that they were, like, for example, TNs were just 1 energy 15k attackers. 
because the version of Skillless we were playing was just aiming to kill people on turn 3 or turn 4. Mm-hmm. And uh, so at that point, it was just like a better card than some of the other junk that was in the main deck. Like against Janembo, you don't really need negates that much. Like sometimes you need a negate or two, but for the most part, you don't need a, a grip of negates. So you can bring some of those out and bring in uh, TNs or something, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, like obviously right now. I'll oh, go ahead. I was also super greedy and playing three of the eight drop foo in my 65. Oh, wow. Just to, like, duke them. <laughs> that card's so good, though. It is very Especially good. If you, build, if you build a board and you play that guy, it's, oof, it's gross. Well, we were playing Dimension Support in the main deck and four mm-hmm. training Buddy Krillin. So we are definitely trying to build a board. Yeah, just go wide. Yep. Yeah, I had a mirror match where on... Sorry for a little technical difficulty there. If you see, if you hear a cut, we uh, we had some uh, well, technical difficulties to be simple. But um, back into the topic, we had been talking about uh, skillless, and, or what, when we played skillless in Ohio, the sideboard cards we were choosing like Tien, Har Har, and Killy Zone, um, and about essentially like how to have a flexible sideboard. But we moved on from that one onto. Having specific sideboard card or having specific adjustments to the main deck based around bad matchups or good matchups, and uh, Russell, you had information on us for us uh, with what you did with Toa in that regard, right? Um, yeah. So, is was this about like the sorry? Was this about the Heavenly Wizard or the? Yeah, yeah. Well, it was after disruptor. that. It was yeah. like the time time disruptor. Yeah. So just like main decking, like you can dedicate some some slots in your main deck, especially. When you have a deck like Toa that's so consistent in what it wants to do, um, you know, it, when it searches out a lot of its pieces, that means that you can dedicate more of your deck space to, like, tech cards, right? Um, I guess if you're talking about other leaders like Clash of Fates, Goku, that's another leader where every card that's green technically isn't dead because right. it can just turn into a free draw, too. Yeah, for so you sure. could. In decks like that, you could you could tech in like a God Striker, the the ultimate box um, or anniversary box Goku that pops barrier cards, or like, that new green extra card we got coming out the draft box, the one that pops something uh, cost greater than or equal to energy. Yeah, the the yeah, new exactly. Father Son Kamehameha, the upgraded one. That's a green card mm-hmm. that like yeah, would that be good. <laughs> that would be a great sideboard card, or even splashed on the main deck if you think you have a bad matchup with that style of effect. And just be able mm-hmm. to discard it when you don't need it. So yeah, that yeah. Like you were saying the fact that your deck is flexible enough, you can afford certain leeways. Mm-hmm. So that's just something important when you when you're building your deck. Like, what can your deck do? Like, how flexible is it? Can I afford to run? You know, like God Strike is like it can be kind of an awkward card because obviously if you're playing against a matchup that you need it against, it's amazing. But if you're playing against a, a matchup that's like maybe a little more aggro and you're not going to have the ability to tap two. You're like, oh god, I don't want this in my main deck, but I can always just pitch it for lead and draw two. You know? Yeah, totally reasonable. Um, whereas, like, what would be a good example of a deck where you don't really have that flexibility that you consider a meta deck? Um, I guess... Shoot. Maybe like U6. <laughs> U6 is a really yeah, linear deck that like kind of does the same thing every game. And when you start splashing cards that don't directly progress your game state, it can mm-hmm. cause the deck to stumble. Yeah, exactly. So, like, U6, uh, like, you can play it with different leaders. Like, I know Jordan Beard was playing it with Shenron. Right. Um, and the other Canada dudes were playing it with 
Brawly or whatnot, just so they could tech in more stuff. But with a deck like that, where its engine needs to hit its pieces in an early turn, it is it, harder to tech in that. Yeah, because you have like decks. less time to accumulate resources, and so, like, whereas Toa can craft its hand over the course of several turns, mm -hmm. uh, with a deck like U6, where you're trying to do the thing on turn two every game, it needs to be as consistent as possible. Yeah. Yeah, like. If you go back or format, it also gets wrecked by all the counterplays. But, like, Skillless was a deck where you had, like, almost no wiggle room. Like, mm -hmm. you had very, very little wiggle room to, like, make the deck function differently. Right. Like, all the turns you had where every play you would be making, you had to consider would it be better than just, like, doing what the deck normally does. Mm -hmm. And most of the time it wasn't. So you just kind of streamlined the deck, make it as powerful as possible in what it was doing and try to improve upon that post board for the matchups that were relevant um, but I know there's some decks like uh, Shenron Gogeta for example that while being a very linear deck it sees a lot of cards very quickly and mm -hmm. has the ability to have those kind of flexible options in the sideboard that or even maybe like one of or two of in the main deck because it sees so many cards that it's not going to directly hinder the strategy in most situations. Yeah, like Shannon Lugia is definitely like extremely flexible. I think, uh, you know, her, Anthony Hernandez, his build obviously did good for him. He got second place. But I think going forward, um, you know, now that Toa got its first like big win, like you have to expect Toa is going to be, it's going to continue to see more play because, you know, the more regionals come out, that means the more Vegetas that are being given out for participation prizes alone, you know, so people are, are getting more Vegetas on their hand, which means more people can afford the deck. Um, and it's obviously arguably the best deck, if not the most flexible deck in the format. Um, that was actually, so I think that, okay, sorry, go ahead. That was actually Sorry. one of the questions we wanted to ask was, uh, what did you think was going to be the deck to beat at this point meta? I, I mean, I think it's Toa. I think just because there are so many good decks, so we see diverse this diverse format, and Toa is just a very flexible deck in what it can do. Um, it, you know, it, if it needs to go aggro, it can go aggro. If it needs to sit back and just rip your hand, it can do that. It's just the deck has so many different lines of play that it can take, that it can just, you can tend to play around even like bad matchups where you have Shenron Gogeta is, it, it can't go aggro obviously because it, ha it has to ramp and it has right. to wait till it can, it can play its stuff, which is why I think, um, I don't think Anthony's build is good going forward because- he doesn't have any respect for aggro? Yeah, he doesn't have, and it doesn't respect the fact that like Toa can go aggro too. It's a very greedy build. You know, it runs the one star, it runs the super Dragon Balls. Yeah, it did great um, for him, but like you said, going mm -hmm. forward with people expecting it for sure now, like mm -hmm. you might, we'll, we might see an aggressive shift in the meta, and that'll just mm -hmm. punish all of the um, Shenron or Peruga decks that aren't playing something like Striving and or Nimbus in their main deck. Yeah, and I remember it was before that finals match, because Jordan and Anthony had played in Swiss and, and Drew in Swiss. So I remember before that finals match, I had like gone up to Jordan. I was like, how did you play that matchup in Swiss? Like, why did you guys go to time? And he said that he sat back a little bit more and tried to like roast his hand and it worked the first time. But then the second game, Anthony was able to just like ramp into, I, I think it was, I think he got him with Oob, if I remember correctly. Yeah, I could see that. Um, 
And so I told him, I was like, just beat face. I was like, Shenron Gogeta, just go full aggro, smooth your Vegetas. I mean, you saw it, and I mean, the finals was over with pretty quickly. Right. <laughs> like, he just kind of went aggro, and just, it wasn't yeah, close. I think it's hard for the Toa deck to accomplish that without the Skillless engine, because, you mm -hmm. know, as a trend of Overrealm, you get powerful effects, but they don't give you board presence. Mm -hmm. And the skillless engine kind of remedies that situation a little bit. Um, mm -hmm. So, like, all your turns prior to turn four give you the option of being aggressive when you're playing the skillless engine. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Whereas, I think the like, skillless engine definitely, like, favors the more aggro route. I think I, either build is, like, still extremely favorable against sure. Gogeta. Uh, but, yeah, definitely a skillless route can go a little more over the top just because you get that 20k body. Right, or like just being able to play Goku for a little bit of extra card advantage, stuff mm -hmm. like that. Um, so would it would you say it's a little far fetched to say that Toa is like a more consistent and more flexible version of Android Cell Chain? Yeah, I would definitely I would definitely say that. Coming from somebody that is like my favorite pet deck was Super Seventeen. Right. Like, I tell people, like, all the time, it kind of, it feels like I'm playing that deck, especially against matchups like Janemba. It's just, it feels like I'm playing Super 17, but a little bit more smooth in a sense that, you know, I don't have to play a, a Hellfighter out on turn three and then right. wait an extra turn to, like, go off. You know, I can do, I can go off all on one turn. Yeah, it's, it's a little bit more forgiving for variants, and the mm -hmm. deck kind of, like, does its thing intentionally and doesn't mm -hmm. put a bunch of limitations or restrictions on it. Um, yeah. like, like where Cell Chain originally, you know, you had to have the three drop plus 17 and 18 in hand, plus mm -hmm. a five and a seven drop in your deck. Like all of those pieces had to be in line for you to pull it off. Mm -hmm. And even then it was card disadvantage and it was easy to predict and easy to play around. Yeah. But like with the Toa engine, it doesn't make them discard, it makes them warp. So it's immune to Mercenary Tau and mm -hmm. the cards that they discard or warp rather are just gone forever, you know? Yeah. Um, so, like, there's a lot of relevant text that is kind of overlooked and how it impacts uh, matchups that, like, hand destruction is traditionally good against and how it mm -hmm. ends up being better, you know? Like, for example, Janemba can't just go and say, okay, you're going to make me discard cards, I'll just discard this uh, all too easy, you know? Mm -hmm. Like, if you're if you're t playing the uh, Mira and they have to warp three cards, they have to put a lot of consideration into what they have to warp. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Like that. That's it. Uh, another reason, like against the like Brawly HOM, is is a pretty interesting matchup. Um, I know the deck doesn't see as much play now because it losing Killy Zone and Battering hurt quite a bit. Um, but I mean, the deck is still around. It can still top if people like don't respect it. Um, I know in Pasadena, me and uh, Marcus Kintarsi played. He was playing Brawly HOM. I was playing Toa. And we ended up drawing, and it was, like, one of the craziest matchups I've, like, ever played. Uh, but that matchup is pretty interesting because it's one where, like, you just want to sit back. Um, you don't even want to really be playing the three-drop mirror to make them discard one all the time. Uh, you kind of just want to sit back, keep your leader ability on deck, and just warp the cards out of their hand. Because if you don't attack them, and you don't give them any free cards, and you just start warping the cards, then it it becomes really hard for uh, HOM decks to to victory strike you. Yeah, like, like Brawly especially. Sparking 10. Yeah, they can't get their Sparking 7. So then they have to start doing some weird plays and try going like a more like aggro Stormish route against you. And if you notice, a lot of the 
uh, high mastery lists that we see um, like doing a little bit better aren't even playing cards like um, the two drop Goku or Mira in the main deck, mm-hmm. which makes it a lot harder for them to be aggressive properly. Mm-hmm. Like the versions playing Gine and uh, Mira, Mira can like enable sparking almost instantaneously. Oh yeah, and you can't really do anything about it. Plus, they can just be aggressive as heck and push you uh, push you into the dirt. Mm-hmm. Just gives you like an alternate way to win, which I'm always like a big fan of. Like I don't like playing decks where it's like I have like one route to win and no real like optimal backup plan. Um, Makes sense why you didn't like Storm. Yeah, I mean Storm was just a, was a great deck, but it was just I think more so in like my local scene, like people just absolutely hated the deck, so it was just I never touched it. <laughs> Shane knows that feeling uh, well, except he played it every week. <laughs> yeah. uh, it was kind of the same thing with Super Shenron. Like nobody in my locals liked the deck, and so I just never touched it. And there was actually like one guy in our locals because we had like this League Cup challenge going on for a couple weeks, and he just brought Super Shenron every single week because he really <laughs> wanted to win. Yeah, uh, Super Shenron made me take a break from this game. Yeah, Super Shenron was the I ran uh, Shenron Boo during that format, because that was, like, the one tech that just ran over Super Shenron. Right. Um, I, I remember having to play against Shenron Boo in Orlando with uh, Blue Black Demigra. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was uh, interesting. Um, I was I was prepared for the uh, Shenron matchups in that I had three barrier blockers in my sideboard mm-hmm. and uh, two Mafuba. So after my opponent went into the Boo chain, he just kind of, like sat there and looked at my board plus my <laughs> plus my hand of like eight cards and like tried tried to kill me but like didn't even come close and it was kind of sad <laughs> yeah very very blockers are like the bane of that deck's existence yeah but they killed it when they banned child's wish though so. <laughs> yeah they sure did man they killed one of my favorite decks too the uh hellfighter hand control deck mm-hmm. that's uh that's the deck i played in teams when we got first in Atlanta in teams. Okay. And, yeah, that deck, uh, that deck was fun. I got lucky enough to play Jinnipa three times. Three <laughs> I got lucky enough to play Jinnipa three times. Oh, God. In teams. So, like, <laughs> got just paired up against one of the three people happened to be Jinnipa three times. It's well, funny how, funny. like, it's funny in team events how you notice that, like, a lot of your matchups end up being, like, the same. Right. Like, when me, Danny, and Fuji won Orlando Celebrations... I think our last three or four matches were all I, the same decks. Like, I played against Janemba, except for the finals. Fuji played, um, I forgot what he was, I think he got the, like, baby or, no, he got, like, Brawly decks. And then Danny played against, like, nothing but baby the entire day. Yeah. It was, uh, it was, it was kind of a mix for us, but there was some repeats. Mm-hmm. I mean, you played against, like, three Shenron, and I, or three Janemba, and I played against, like, three Shenron. Right, and then, like, uh, uh, Trevor played against, like, three Height of Mastery decks. But it wasn't, like, it wasn't like every matchup was the same three decks. It was just, like, seeing the same deck in the same slot multiple times during the day. And, like, in, uh, when I did Dallas teams with Ryan, and Ryan's like, oh, I'm gonna build this deck that completely relies on Shugesh, and then plays, you know, uh, what was that, Shane? 
when Ryan decides he's going to play a deck that completely relied on Shugesh and then plays Cronoa four out of five rounds. Oh, yeah. Rounds. Oh, gosh. <laughs> In best of one teams. I remember. I still remember the finals of Orlando. I was playing against uh, Daniel Brown from Dehan's team. And I knew... So I was on uh, Brawley GT for my team, and he was on Brawley HLM. And I knew he was main decking Cronoa. I didn't know how many copies he was main decking, but... I just got lucky, I guess, in that finals because he didn't draw it game one, and then right. game two, by the time he drew it, I think I already played like one or two Shugesh, so. Yeah, like, I'm kind of glad Shugesh is gone because now we don't have that weird dynamic of like, did I draw Cronoa turn one? Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, I'm dead, okay. <laughs> it's also just nice not having to just like side deck one card to stop one card. Right, exactly. No, I definitely agree. Um, so, before we lost audio, uh, or before we lost that video recording, we, you had been talking to us a little bit about some of the things that um, is like effective against Toa. Uh, mm-hmm. Since we don't have any of that recorded, I don't think we do at least, we can we can go over that now and it'll, it'll add to the video, fortunately. Especially um, since I think we can all agree Toa's the deck to beat in Orlando. Yeah, yes. definitely. Um, like you had said, with so many more regulator promos being given out, the deck's going to become more and more readily played. And while that's almost a good thing because Toa's not an easy deck to pilot, and you'll end up getting a lot of free wins off people thinking they can just pick the deck up, um, if your deck's not good against Toa, you'll get a lot of free losses regardless of who's playing the deck. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Um, but if you had to like pinpoint one of the flaws of Toa that you could exploit as a person trying to gear yourself for a competitive event, what would it be? Um, the biggest flaw is just, just aggro. Any deck that can produce a lot of little attackers in the early turns and just keep swinging is just really hard for Toe to deal with because they're going to have to take the first few attacks. Um, and then as, as it goes on, they, they pretty much lose the cards they gained off life because as you keep swinging with those cards, they have to keep discarding from their hand because outside of like toe can deal with going tall very wide you know you drop a gogeta give it triple attack triple strike i can stop that you know you go all in on a double striker that's not your leader i can stop that right you know um so decks that just go super wide are really hard to deal with decks that are like leader based are pretty good like um if you do a lot of your damage with your leader like clash fates goku on its backside can give you some problems if they if they drop a feet and go up to a thirty five double strike crit, it's a lot of cards that Toa has to shell out to deal with it because they can't just tow leader your leader. Right. Else that would be that'd be ridiculous. One thing I've noticed about Toa, and it, just from like watching it play and having played it a little bit myself, it doesn't really draw super combos. Like, no. <laughs> like most of the time they're in your discard pile or on the bottom of your deck. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Granted, That's I never why. played Toa, but I noticed the same thing playing Massive. And yeah, even more than you actually draw. That's why matchups like, uh, like, like I said, the mirror match, like super combos and power bursts are really important. So if you see them in your opening hand, um, and you already have like the starters that you want to see, like Vegeta and Toa, you keep those um, because milling super combos and power bursts in the mirror match just feels, it feels really bad. But also, like if you keep them in your opening hand, obviously it lowers your chance of milling them. 
Because when you do mill them, then you're just giving your opponent information where they're like, okay, I can be a little bit more aggressive because I know you don't have as much defense in your hand. I think you it's know, also... Like power... okay. oh, go ahead. Uh, I think it's also one of those things where, like in a matchup, in a mirror match specifically, uh, one of the deciding factors is like who manages their resources better, right? And mm -hmm. then you look at variants and who draws more of their card advantage-related resources. So things mm -hmm. like power bursts that replace themselves and super combos which replace themselves being some of the only true, like, one-for-one -one replacement outside of the cards you play, like regulators and uh, scientist food or whatever, right? Um, mm -hmm. A way to gain card advantage on your opponent's turn that is outside of their, like, scope of um, expected, like, results, right? So... Yeah. The best way I can describe it is like they're attacking with X card and a power burst can throw off their math on how they need a combo on the following attack, you know, or a super mm -hmm. combo could do the same thing. So like having those resources in your hand early is a way to stabilize card advantage in the mid to late game when you really need it. Yes. That's why like the skillless engine is good in the mirror match too, because it's like the one drop Goku every turn is netting you a card and then if you use its ability it's giving you a free attacker without devoting any of your hand to it right um so it's just it's a way to acro them down and still like maintain your hand advantage and then if you're going then you're also forcing your opponent you're like hey i'm getting closer to killing you or you're you're losing your hand to stay alive and four star balls are really nice targets to warp with mirror Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, one thing I think a lot of people overlook, if I'm not mistaken, um, if you're attacking with a battle card that already has double strike, you can champa and give it another instance of double strike, and Toa can only remove one of the two instances. Yes. So, like, that's something that's not uh, irrelevant. You know, you can attack with mm -hmm. a battle card that has double all in on it and champa that card, or not even necessarily champa, but Iskai specifically because you have to declare, right? So yeah, making the point of the learning, making the point of declaring double strike on your card that already has double strike, can insulate you against uh, situations like that because that is a skill based factor, you know. Mm -hmm. And that's the thing too, for the Toa player and the player playing against Toa, there's a lot to keep track of every turn for Toa. Um, so like you said, stuff like that, you know, maybe like getting those two instances of double strike. Is very good. Also, if you're playing against Toa, just always be aware of what the count in their warp is. Um, I've had two instances, one in uh, Pasadena and one in Philly, where I won a game because my opponent just didn't count my warp. And if they would have just asked to see my warp and counted that there was 10 in there, they could have avoided the entire situation. Oh, where you like uh, surprise awaken on them and take off yeah. their effect? Yeah. So I, in my build, um, and I told Jordan to throw this in his build too, was the new Trunks from set 7. Uh, I think it's one of the best cards to come out in that set. Yeah. Um, and it added a ton to Toa. And I get people asking me all the time, like, why not just play like the Supreme Kai that looks at the top 3 or the Bardock that's at 20k um, when you overwhelm it. But the Trunks warping one is actually just, like, ridiculously big because turn 1, you can... Use your leader ability, warp those three, play it, then warp one from your hand, and at end of turn, he goes to the warp. That's five in warp, turn one. So against aggressive decks, it immediately turns on your super combos, turn one. And then there's like there's little situations where like if you have a seven drop mirror charge and one in hand, and you go into your turn four with the five drop in hand, like you don't 
know what's left in your deck. You know, you, the other two mirrors could be in your life for all you know. Right. Like, so it's kind of like that risk. You don't know how much you have left in there. But if you have Vegeta on board and the trunks in hand, you can start your turn off by overwhelming, draw two, and then warp the big mirror in your hand, and then trigger the Vegeta to put the big mirror on the bottom of your deck. Right. So that way you know that you have at least one in there, and you can go into your five drop. Um, so there's just like cool little stuff like that. So earlier you mentioned how aggro is good into uh, Toa, and mm-hmm. what is uh, what is another detail that you would say like maybe effective sideboarding against Toa, or uh, a factor that people could consider if their deck can't go aggressive as a way to hedge against Toa? Mm. I think one card that's really small that most people think is really bad against Toa because it doesn't hit the the big one is the Tau. Um, and Tau is... Everybody I talk to thinks that card's like bad against Toa, but it's actually really, really good against Toa. And it only stops the 3-drop Miura that dr- discards one card, but that card is like one of the best cards in the deck. It just... It does a lot for the deck. Um, it's aggression... It's a way to hit your opponent's hands. And just the fact that it's it's a free... It doesn't cost anything to overrealm. It's a cheap overrealm. Right. Um, it's a, it's another target for your Vegeta to be able to just, like, fix your your overrealm in the later turns. Um, yeah, it's, like, one of those cards that, like, while it doesn't seem super impactful, and it's not the card you're, like... It doesn't seem like a card you would want to hate out with a sideboard card... It mm-hmm. fills out the early turns well enough that if you just shut off four of those cards from their deck, or let's just say three, right, because they play one turn one mm-hmm. or something, then uh, all of a sudden they're restricted to, like, overwhelming other cards instead. Exactly. In an it just four bricks card advantage. Yeah, it just adds four bricks to their deck now where they, they essentially aren't playing that mirror unless they're going for game. Right. And if they, don't, if they don't play the trunks, or if they do play the trunks and they don't see it, now their overrealms every turn become a little awkward. You know, they don't just have free overrealms every turn. Right, like, it's, um, instead of, like, getting value out of uh, a Mira by drawing a card, make you discard a card, they might, like, play a Mass Sand to just pressure with a Double Striker instead mm-hmm. of, and, and draw their card rather than, like, getting real value out of it. Exactly, and especially against, like, the Mirror Match, too. Uh, is huge in the Mirror Match. If you have Tau and your opponent doesn't have Tau, uh, which I believe... Jordan wasn't running it. So, Jordan, if you're listening to this and we would have played in the finals, I would have 2 0 you because you didn't have Tau on your sideboard. Um, <laughs> but it's, it's, it's huge in the mirror match because typically you don't want to be playing your Vegeta first anyways unless you have, like, a second one in hand and a Tau to back it up um, or a Toa to back it up. So, like, typically games 2 and 3, I, I mull for, to see the Tau. And if I have it in my opening hand, I just slap it down when I hit that two energy because you want to shut that three drop mirror off right away. Right. Because that card is the three drop mirror is is insane against every deck, but especially in the mirror match because, the, like I said, the mirror match is all aggression, all hand size, and a three drop mirror just provides both of those. Being able to take a card and then apply pressure all at the same time is really is really key. And so being able to just shut that off. And if my opponent doesn't shut mine off, that means that I get to play with one of the best cards in the deck, and you don't. Right, for sure. That's totally reasonable. Um, now, we talked about the skillless engine in Toa, and um, 
and how good it can make it because it, like it gives you really good aggressive lines that allow you to like retain card advantage. Um, mm -hmm. But normally when playing that engine, you have to kind of sacrifice the Toki Toki engine. Um, mm -hmm. Going into the meta as we see it, would you say that's still probably the best line? Or would you say it's worth reconsidering the Toki Toki engine as a way to be more flexible uh, across the board against decks that are more likely to hate out Toa now? Um, I think it is worth reconsidering a little bit just because I think we're in a state now where people realize that Toa is probably just the best all-around deck and the deck to beat going into Orlando. So there should be a higher count of Toa players, which means there should be more decks that are trying to go wide and fast against you. Um, like like I said, if Veggies curves out perfectly, it's really hard. Um, I did play two U6s in Philly and beat both of them. Uh, but that's because I was running the Toki Toki engine, and I had Time Regulator, Massane, and Kami in my main deck. So it was easier for me to, like, stop aggression earlier and deal with their boards. Right. Um, like, there was one player, I Kami'd him, and then on his turn, he swung, and I Power Burst him, brought back the Kami. After he had, like, built his board again, and he just goes, oh, shit. <laughs> like, <laughs> all of a sudden, he's just in this really bad spot all again. Like, yeah. Almost unwinnable, you know? So I do think it, it definitely is worth, like, reconsidering um, just because there's merits to both. Like, the skillless engine is good in the mirror match, but you have to sacrifice stuff. Like, Jordan was only fitting two power bursts in his main deck, and power bursts is, like, the god card yeah. in the mirror match. When I saw <laughs> so that from only... his list, that was, like, one of my only big complaints is I feel like that's just mm -hmm. a card you have to play four of because it's so powerful. Yeah. And it's just tough because the skillless engine, it, it's a big engine, so you have to sacrifice stuff. And even then, um, he went down to 3-3-3. Three, three, three. Yeah. <laughs> he and wasn't even playing the four ofs. He also has to sacrifice, like, his, his mirror accounts, you know? Like, I think he was only running two of the overrealm three drops, and then for his foos, I think he was only running two banisher foos. And I like to run a higher Mira in food count just because I hate missing off of the leader ability. And if you miss in a mirror match, it just feels really, really bad because now I'm down a card in the mirror match right. and every card counts in that matchup. Um, so I, I do think it is worth reconsidering the skillless engine. It's good, um, but just depending on like what you expect in Orlando, if you expect to see like more decks trying to go wide against you, then it, it might be worth it to just run like the the commies with the Toki Toki engine, uh, Massane in the main, time regulators, more power bursts. Yeah, that makes sense. Just like a more defensive variation that mm -hmm. aims to play a slightly longer game. Yeah. It's um, just like, it gives you a little bit more flexibility for different matchups. Shane, what do you think? Uh, I was actually going to go on to something different. So, earlier, even though I think it got cut off, we were talking like the red matchup was kind of bad for Toa and you were specifically talking about Vegeta Baby so is it fair mm -hmm. to say we're probably going to see an uptick in red in Orlando I think so I think it sh I think there should be an uptick in Baby specifically I think decks like Pan and Frieza Prison like those red decks I don't think are good against Toa really? Um, I, I, yeah, I, don't, I don't think they're like, Frieza Prison is pretty free, and Pan... I know I lost in the finals to Pan in Pasadena, but if your opponent doesn't see Chain Zeno and then draw into Bardock, like, three turns in a row, then you win that matchup. Um, 
uh, I think I'm and, just a little bit misconstrued because of like the definition of pan in my head is different now because of uh, mm -hmm. some of the innovations of our team and one of our team members, uh, Robert Reitz, and mm -hmm. uh, his kind of crazy pan list that in testing for us has been doing pretty well in Datoa. But it's okay. nothing like a traditional pan list, so I can mm -hmm. totally see what you're saying there. Because like your traditional pan lists are much more mid rangey and don't try to play a uh, a super aggressive game. Mm -hmm. Whereas the uh, the pan lists that we've been testing have the ability to kill on turn three. Okay. Yeah. Um, doesn't always do it, but like with a good draw, turn three is not unreasonable. Mm -hmm. I just think is it depends on like like the aggro deck and what you're trying to do like universal cards that are really good against toa are like source of power and digging deep um like cards that especially that you can drop cheap that are like three drops dual attack 20ks are really hard for toa to deal with um i think people need to be like careful if they're trying to just go full aggro and wide but like they're dropping a lot of two drops that's probably not the best route to go against Toa because right. if they have they go time regulator and just stop your aggression, um, which is why I ran four in in Pasadena is because there was a lot of Pan and Harudagarn players, um, and I think I played against like two or three in Swiss and two old all of them just because time regulator put in a lot of work in those matchups. And that's um, something. Uh... Or time disruptor. Sorry, I keep saying time regulator. Yeah. Time disruptor. And I think that card's super relevant, and I think it always deserves a spot in your deck if you have a hard time versus aggro, because it's so flexible, and the card mm -hmm. replacement is relevant. Um, and that's something I liked about the pan list that we had been playing, is that there's only two uh, two drops or lower in the deck, mm -hmm. two different ones, and the rest of the attackers are three costs or more. Mm -hmm. so yeah, that, and that's that the thing. In that if, you, situation. if you can cheat out three drops, and you can cheat out a bunch of them early against toa like that's that's really effective because time disruptor is it's a card that's definitely shaping the meta um and it's a card that you always have to like worry about right. um if, if your deck is susceptible to time disruptor then it's probably not a deck that you want to be running just because toa is maining at least two to three copies in their main and has like a third or fourth copy in a side and um, if they're not you probably don't need to be worried about them anyways yeah so <laughs> it's just no, that's it's totally it's just a good card. Um, so yeah, we kind of went over uh, some of the strengths and weaknesses of Toa, uh, sideboard strategies, and like approaching bad matchups. Um, was there anything we else, else we wanted to bring up, Shane? Anything specific, at least? Uh, not that I can think of. Was there anything else that you want to expand on when it comes to, uh, to Toa, Russell? Um, I think the biggest thing is just like, just be aware of like everything the deck can do. Get a lot of repetitions and and just know that like every, like there's a lot of different ways you play it depending on your matchups. You know you can sit back, you can go aggro. Um, it's kind of the defining feature of a mid range deck, you know. Yeah, so and, it's just just but, be aware of what your opponent's deck is doing and what you're trying to do. And I think a lot of, like, the community definitely wanted more of these, like, matchup knowledge decks. And just, especially since we're in a very diverse format right now, you you could literally expect anything. You know, in Philly, I played seven different decks in Swiss. Right. Um, so you could play, you could potentially play against a deck you've never played against. Um, and I think one example that I have is actually a long time ago, SS3 format, when I was playing Mono Blue SS3, 
I played against uh, a Harutagar and Veggie deck. It was the, the um, DBZ dudes were like really on that deck, and they took when I won Portland, they took second and third with that Harutagar and Veggie deck. Um, and it was I had never played against it before, and I remember them saying that they thought it was a really favorable matchup against Mono Blue, and I got blown out game one, like absolutely right. blown out. And I was I remember sideboarding. And I was like, how do I, like, beat this deck? Because I've never played it before. Almost panicking, right? Because it's one of yeah, those, Yeah, like... so I was just kind of, like, I was thinking back on, like, what I was doing in that game. You know, I, I was like, maybe I attacked him too much. I gave him too many cards. Um, so he just had too many resources. So games two and three, I sided in some removal. And I literally just, like, did nothing. I just sat back, let him build his board. And then every time he built his board, I just, like, defended his attacks, cleared his board, um, saved my Sensu Beans for when I was able to establish, like, a Vegito. Right. Uh, because all those dudes are 20k, so Bean does nothing by itself unless I have two on my leader. Um, and eventually, he was just able to like gas him out and drop like the five drop beers at the time, which was like a big game finisher for me. So it was just like stuff like that when you're going to formats where you could expect anything, even if you don't know the matchup. You know, obviously, we're making videos and like podcasts or stuff like this to like help you in known matchups, but even in unknown matchups, like don't get discouraged. If you're at a big event and you play against something you don't know, just think back if you lose game one on like what you did and just any little thing you could do differently to just slightly disrupt your opponent. And you, you never know because you might end up winning that match just by trying to adjust. But some players just get too down on themselves and like give up in matchups that they've never played before and they think is bad. And if you think about it, even if there are, like you said, you played against seven different decks um, at the, in, um, Philly, uh, mm-hmm. there's like still the possibility, or not a possibility either, rather, it's going to be along the lines of even with seven different decks, those seven different decks will still fall into specific categories and will still play along a certain spectrum. So mm-hmm. you get in a position where you play against a deck you've never played against before, we'll try to simplify it a little bit. Look at it from an angle of, okay, what decks am I, do I play against that are similar to this and how do I approach those matchups? And that might yeah. be a way to improve an unknown matchup on the, uh, the drop of a dime. Exactly. Yeah, like, you're always going to play against the random decks. Like, they're always... We lost you there for a second. I was just saying you're always going to play against a random deck at some point. Right. And, you know, some of the times they're free wins, but some of the times, like, uh, like, uh, Russell Like, my case, they're in Ohio. They're absolutely horrible. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> you never know, but it, um... Like, uh, what did you... It was the last round of Swiss, right, Shane? And you had to play against the Red uh, Clash Frieza? was literally my winning in, and it was Red Clash Frieza. And I was like, well, this sucks. Like, just and an unexpected matchup that nobody was playing that just happened to be really good. Yep, and I should have lost. But he didn't negate my attack for whatever reason. Jeez. He had the after image in hand and did not play it. It's just one of those things. Little mistakes like that are what separate the uh, the good players from the gr- the great players, right? Danny literally went over and told you I was gonna lose my winning. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, sometimes sometimes you do just get unlucky like that. Like my Anthony or my teammate on KTM, Anthony Nicholas, uh, in what was it in AC for the ARG big ARG event. Shenron Gogeta, like, wasn't a big deck at the time. Um, but 
there was three players that decided to play it at that event and it ended up being a good meta call for that event because there was a lot of kid right and uh my teammate was what was he five and oh and then played three shenron gogetas in a row oh god <laughs> and lost poor guy all three <laughs> that's always the worst feeling Oh, I just remember after that tournament, he had he was like holding a Shenron in his hand, and he was just like, "I want to rip this so bad." <laughs> <laughs> uh, that that's kind of, but you can get it on the reverse end of the spectrum too. Um, in Orlando, I played Blue Black Harudagarn, and my best matchup was Janemba, and I played into Janemba mm -hmm. four times. Mm -hmm. And like, so like that can happen too sometimes, and that's sometimes how someone gets into a top placing finish with a, a less than like ideal deck. Or mm -hmm. something with a like an odd strategy is just that it's got a niche matchup that's very good, and it yeah. happens to be one of the meta decks. And if you just play against that deck a lot, a meta call can get you there. Mm -hmm. And Janemba was rampant at that tournament. It, it was, was everywhere. It definitely was. I mean, it was like three of the top eight uh, spots after yeah. Swiss minimum. I think. I think I played against three in Swiss. Yeah, I played against four, and uh, not one of them was. Hard, but not not none of them were. I wouldn't say easy either. Like because mm -hmm. you know Janemba does what it does. Yeah. Oh, That's man. Why I think Anthony was pretty free. <laughs> <laughs> well, I I wouldn't say uh, wouldn't say that considering I didn't get the win. So. I mean, if he was free, I would have won, right? That's how it works. Technically. Okay, never mind. We won't get it. <laughs> But uh, I yeah. told him I told him at that tournament because he was like he was like I think I could beat you if we would have played and everything and I told him I was like you're playing Janemba I was like you're not beating me <laughs> as long as there's no time limit right yeah <laughs> to be fair you're right but uh, <laughs> I mean we've went over a lot of stuff here I think a lot of this was really good information um, hopefully this has given a bit of expansive insight on Toa and just like competitive metagame decisions in general for anybody that's watching um our guest was russell stelzer and you're on which team again i'm on kitchen table meta you're on kitchen table meta ktm um i know they have a youtube channel twitch stream all that jazz uh facebook pages so you know go follow them if you haven't already you probably are considering the name but uh you can also find us on twitch and on uh facebook as gamers and geeks elite on facebook we're most active there but thank you to everybody watching, and have a nice day, and stay elite.